0: San Francisco has a reputation for bureaucracy, especially when it comes to building new multifamily housing.
1: We have all of these things up front that you have to meet, and then you have an unknown, (laughs) immeasurable set of things you have to meet in addition to that. That's when it gets into ridiculousness.
0: I'm Laura Wenis. This week, we'll hear about state legislation intended to make the process of getting housing approved a little more predictable by chipping away at the city's expansive discretionary review process. And how all this could also help reshape downtown. From the San Francisco Chronicle, this is SF Next, fixing our city. Two local housing wonks are on a crusade against red
1: tape. My name is Matt Haney. I am an assembly member representing the 17th Assembly District in San Francisco and former member of the Board of Supervisors and Board of Education.
2: My name is Bilal Mahmoud.
1: I'm an entrepreneur and civil servant
2: here in the city and a board member of UMB Action.
0: These two actually competed for the assembly seat that Matt Haney now occupies, but they still talk. They have a shared mission: create incentives for San Francisco to build more housing faster. Bilal Mahmoud went down the rabbit hole to suss out exactly how tangled this bureaucracy is. For an opinion piece for The Chronicle in March, he talked to city staff who work in that system about what it takes to get a new apartment building constructed. He went in thinking the problem was zoning, or what rules the city sets for how land can be used. His actual takeaway?
2: Even if you up-zoned everything to 50 stories, nothing would get built because the red tape in City Hall makes it impossible. We have this issue of discretionary review, and, and permits are discretionary, that it requires so many meetings and permits and fees. Like it's a thousand days of meetings that you have to go through through the planning commission, have 87 permits you have to apply through, and then combination of impact fees and permitting fees on average for a 10 to $20 million project is $500,000 in fees. And all of that just makes it financially infeasible to build in San Francisco.
0: One problem he explored in his Chronicle piece is that projects can't go through the permitting processes with multiple departments at the same time. So you first have to go through one department, then the next, and then the next, rather than having the processes run in parallel. Mahmoud says city leaders are working to change that. Assemblymember Haney was in the local legislature before he went to the state level. So I asked him if this kind of process is unique to San Francisco.
1: This is definitely a San Francisco problem. It's also a statewide problem. But San Francisco is unique for a number of ways on this question. One is because there's just a tremendous need to build housing in in San Francisco. We have created tens of thousands of jobs. There's a huge demand to live here. And so the consequences of not building housing in San Francisco are especially acute.
0: Right now, construction costs are insane. And San Francisco's population has actually dropped. And I was talking with an economist a little while ago who was saying that it seems like demand to live here is down. So why are we talking about red tape for new construction when that does not seem to be like the most pressing issue if we're losing people and it's just too expensive to build, regardless of whether you have permits or not?
1: I think it is so hard and expensive to build in San Francisco. Yes, demand is down, but there's still huge demand to live here. And we haven't met the demand that existed beforehand. Rents are still very high here as compared to the rest of the state and the country. and so getting rid of that red tape. There couldn't be a, a better time to do it. At the same time, it's it's messy because it's in our charter. It's in our local law. It's in our state law. And so every level of it has to be kind of unpacked. I mean, another thing
2: is that this is a cyclical problem. If you don't have enough housing, then the housing that you do have gets more expensive. And then people don't want to live here because it's too expensive. And then they leave. And so if you don't build enough housing by law of supply and demand, the prices won't go down. And the other factor is it's like, even with the housing that we have, we have to build affordable housing for the people who want to live here or stay here. It's not just people who want to move here, it's people who want to stay.
0: So, I mean, one thing that occurs to me in this discussion is that during the pandemic, rents did drop. We didn't add a crap load of housing during the pandemic. They just came down because of changes in the circumstances. Is what you're both saying kind of like, Let's get rid of the red tape now so that we can build more so that we're ready when demand comes back up.
1: Well, demand before the pandemic in, in San Francisco was at you know astronomical. I mean, it was I think demand has gone down slightly, but it's still incredibly high. And most people can't afford to live in San Francisco, and there are a lot of people who still want to live in San Francisco, including the people who are here who have families who want to stay or families who are growing. And so we still have a demand that we have to meet. Rents went down slightly and it sort of has stabilized, but we still have one of the most unaffordable rental markets in the country. And that is because of decades of underbuilding housing for the demand that we have in the city.
0: I wanted to circle back to the question of bringing costs down by adding supply in a time when building is so expensive. Developers are not going to just charge lower rents or price the homes they build lower for no reason. They need the costs to work out. So I asked if streamlining alone will really accomplish that, or if we need other incentives too. Mahmoud references DBI here. That's the Department of Building Inspection, one of the city agencies that issues permits.
2: Permit fees to DBI that we charge in the city are directly proportional to the cost of construction. So the higher the cost of construction, the higher the permit fees. So if we change the permit fee structure, then theoretically that's also a way to also reduce the impact of high cost of construction. We have the slowest approval time for projects in the entire of California. It's like 400 days longer even than Oakland. On average, it takes about a thousand days. The longer it takes to get a project approved, the longer a building owner is sitting on the land that they bought, the longer they're just kind of accruing costs, that they then have to recoup by charging even higher rent five to 10 years down the road when they actually have the building finished. And I think, Matt, maybe you can talk about like the, the legislation
1: you're working on that will actually help to reduce the building permit approval process. San Francisco, we talked about it being unique. It's It has one of the longest approval timelines of any city in the state. We're the only city in the state where after you've received all your approvals from planning and the board of supervisors and everything else, and we hand you the building permit, anyone in the city can then at that point stand up and appeal.
0: This is part of a concept known as discretionary review. San Francisco has a system in which several different bodies, like the Planning Commission, have extensive discretion over whether to issue or review the many permits that new housing projects have to get. And as Haney brings up, any individual can pipe up and ask for the city to exercise its discretion. For example, a neighbor can petition the Planning Commission to take discretionary review of your permits for adding an in-law unit to your backyard. And that goes for bigger projects, too. Haney has legislation in the works to remove the option for individuals to swoop in and appeal at an even later point, after a project has been approved and is getting its building permits.
1: There are developers who build housing all over the state who won't step foot in San Francisco because of this. And we now are on the hook to build 80,000 units of housing over the next eight years. And it's a critical need for our city, including about half of that has to be affordable to low and middle income folks. And this process of review and appeal is used on lots of types of housing, but it's especially used on affordable housing developments. So if we're gonna actually build 80,000 units of housing, This is one of many things that we need to do to make it a lot easier and quicker. Also, Laura, just from the numbers perspective
2: of the 87 permits that we described, 19 come from DBI. The median time in San Francisco to build at that stage of the process is 627 days. And worse is that 270 projects over the last 10 years have taken more than four years to get those permits, actually.
0: And why? Why is that? Like, what is taking 600 days?
2: It's because of the the thing that Assemblymember Haney's legislation will actually solve, which is people can appeal at during this any stage of that building permit process, and that will just lengthen the time. And the end result is that just by comparison, that 627 days is a San Francisco phenomenon. It's, it takes 200 days in Oakland, just the city next door. With Assemblymember Haney's legislation, it could be cut to 400
1: days shorter.
0: What is the state of that legislation before I move on to a different piece of legislation you've got in the works?
1: It has moved out of both committees, I think, unanimously. So, you know, people in the state level, they love to beat up on San Francisco a bit. So this is, this is an easy one for them. But they're, they're getting a kick out of this. Oh, San Francisco, you know, has a problem. So the Republicans are supporting it and everything.
0: Let me just bring up kind of a critique of this, which is that activists, I think, would say that these kinds of last minute appeals or the threat of last minute appeals has gotten developers to either fix mistakes or provide better community benefits for a project. So that could be something like forcing a market rate developer to provide more below-market-rate housing, or I've even heard of, like, warning a city body that, like, a unit that's supposed to be empty and redeveloped actually does have somebody living in it, kind of under the radar. Or we had recently um, people raising concerns about toxic contamination. This would take that tool out of activists' hands. Why is that worthwhile?
1: Well, if people are concerned about whether we will have enough review of, of housing projects in San Francisco, if this legislation or some of these other changes happen, that should not be a concern. We will still have very extensive review that's done by the planning department, that's done by DBI, that there's still opportunities for people to appeal and their voices to be heard throughout the process. So I understand that, but...
0: There's still review. It's still happening. Thank
1: there's you. still review. And, and ultimately, the right way to do this is set a standard as a city on the level of affordability, on the level of open space, on all of those things. And if folks meet it, let them build the project. I mean, what, what we have now is we set a standard and we have all of these things up front that you have to meet. And then you have an unknown, (laughs) immeasurable set of things you have to meet in addition to that. That's when it gets into ridiculousness. The right place to set standards for housing projects is in the democratic process. And then it should go from there and not just be just a a grab bag of, of things that are unpredictable.
0: Haney's office acknowledges that there are ways that the initial parts of the process can be improved, especially on communication and outreach to neighbors. This legislation also wouldn't end all appeals, even up to pretty late in the process. That appeal on environmental grounds that stalled the 469 Stevenson project, the one on the former Nordstrom parking lot, that kind of appeal could still happen under this bill. The project recently won its reapprovals, by the way. But those 11th-hour objections that happen even later are unique to San Francisco, and this legislation would bar them. Haney wants certain baselines to be standardized— Of those standards, affordability might be the most challenging to set. And San Francisco is staring down new requirements for building a lot of affordable housing and fast. More on that after a break. Before we go, a reminder that we want to hear from you. We'd like you to have a voice on this podcast too. Do you have a solution that you want the city to pursue or know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send a voice memo or write an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. I've been talking with Assemblymember Matt Haney and YIMBY activist Bilal Mahmoud. Haney just brought up setting general standards about things like affordability. About that, San Francisco does set a standard for what portion of new development needs to be rented or sold at below market rate to try to maintain some level of affordability. This is called inclusionary housing. Developers can also pay a proportional fee instead of including those units in the building. An advisory committee that comes up with recommendations for how much below-market-rate housing should be required just came to an alarming conclusion. Construction costs and other factors being what they are, no amount of affordable housing in a building is really going to pencil out for developers on most big projects. But that doesn't make the need for it go away. In fact, the state has also mandated that nearly half of the 80,000 units San Francisco is supposed to be building over the next eight years need to be below market rate. How the city will accomplish that is still a major question.
1: I think we expect too many of these units to come from inclusionary housing. I I support inclusionary percentages. But if you need a lot of market rate units and you need those to be feasible and those are hard to build because of how expensive they are, and you need a lot of affordable units as well, and you tie these two things together in a way that we do by jacking up the inclusionary, you, you end up getting less of both you know sometimes we think we're doing good by jacking up the affordability percentage in a building but the the other consequence of that is that they have to make all of their market rate units super luxury in order to cover the costs of the affordable units and instead what we need to do is fund those affordable units in other ways we now have the ability in the bay area to do regional bond measures we're working on a housing bond measure that can build tens of thousands of affordable units across the Bay Area and for next year's ballot. We also need to make it easier to pass housing bonds. It's completely unreasonable to require a two-thirds vote on a bond for housing. We're going to need a lot more and more regular housing bonds.
0: Haney has a proposal in the works to lower that threshold so these bonds can get passed more easily. But even once bond money comes in, developers who focus on 100% below market rate projects have to go through that long permitting process too, and they face a lot of time pressure.
2: I talked to a couple affordable housing developers, and something I didn't know was that after building a permit approval, they have to complete construction within 18 months, or they will risk losing their affordable housing bonds. And so it kind of like brings it back full circle about, Matt's indicated like we really need to focus on affordable housing bond financing and, and make that easier. Because of the red tape in San Francisco, it adds extra kind of like anxiety to developers nonprofit developers because they have to meet this really fascinating, like unfortunate strict deadline.
0: All this talk about mountains of red tape brings to mind a different discussion that's been going on for more than a year now. San Francisco needs to build tons of housing. It also has lots of empty office space and a dead downtown. I asked my guests about another bill that Haney wrote. This one intended to help make it possible for developers to convert office space into housing.
1: Well, if San Francisco does what it does to all other types of housing construction, if if they extend all of that to office to housing conversions, it'll never get done. It'll never pencil. It'll never be feasible. It'll take forever and people won't do it. These can be complicated and and expensive for sure to do these conversions, but they're absolutely doable. They are feasible, (laughs) but we have to make sure that we streamline their approval. So if you've already built an office building, if you've paid all those fees, if you've got all those approvals, you should not have to start from square one (laughs) to, to then convert that to housing. That's essentially what our bill says. And the result is that in San Francisco, there are absolutely thousands of units, probably tens of thousands of units that if this bill passed, we could convert from empty office floors that aren't serving any purpose right now to housing that people can use. The problem is back to the red tape
2: that's impeding financial feasibility. Like the entire leviathan of of red tape that is impeding all development in San Francisco is also impeding downtown office housing conversion problem. And so everything we do to cut red tape, whether it's the previous bill, something Morheny mentioned, or this direct one focused more specifically on office to housing conversion, all of it
1: will have an impact on helping these projects muscle out. But also, many of the leases that are currently in place now are gonna be up in the coming years. Mm. And many of those folks are gonna pull out entirely. And so if you have a building where you have a lease now, in a couple of years, there are gonna be folks who are gonna come around and look at buying these buildings. And we wanna put the conditions in place where they can consider purchasing these buildings to convert. Otherwise, this will be a spiraling effect where these buildings are going to be drastically reduced in their value and they might sit empty for much longer as a result. And so we want to get this law in place so people can look at it and go, well, the office market isn't great, but we can buy this building and we can convert it.
0: So just on this piece about imposing strict time limits on all building permits, I got to tell you, I've seen more than one mayor tell departments that they just need to like limit the amount of time they spend on applications or reduce the time or like, you know, streamline this. And I, I'm a little skeptical of imposing time limits without reducing workload. Is there a reducing workload element of this or like how how are departments supposed to just reduce
1: the time? Part of what changes is They set hearings a lot quicker. If if there's a certain hearing that needs to take place, they'll put it on the agenda a lot quicker than they might otherwise. They, you know, for us, it's about also getting rid of various opportunities to appeal. You know, streamlining is partly about timelines, but timelines are connected to the number of hearings that need to take place and appeals that need to take place. And so we're also removing some of those.
0: I checked back on this, and to be clear, the bill would remove some permitting. It would make office conversion projects ministerial or by right. And that means that if they meet basic requirements, they don't need to get discretionary approvals like a conditional use permit, which involves a hearing process. Organizations that want to push cities to build more could also use the court to enforce these deadlines. And then you make it legally
1: binding. So if you don't get it in that amount of time or you have more hearings than needed to be in place, somebody can sue. And so that's also gets people moving pretty quickly, too.
0: So on the uh, on the carrot end of this equation, I wonder what both of you think, especially you, Bilal, because I know you've been talking to a lot of different people about what would really entice people to do this. I think in Calgary, for example, there's essentially like some subsidization of converting offices to housing. Do we need to just kind of add more incentives?
2: I think we're removing... The disincentives is a reasonable incentive. (laughs) I think it's also in supplement thinking about creative projects that thinking outside the box and how to bring in other types of projects that could actually be helpful or want to be in those those places. So an example is student housing, specifically state-owned student housing. There's a new academic hub that is being built by UC Hastings that will house UC Hastings students as well as Cal students. And the benefit of UC-based housing is that it has state tax exemption. And so that enables it to get further financially feasible because the taxes are eliminated on state housing. Imagine if we house 10,000 students in San Francisco, that could actually be like a regular source of people who are not going to leave. Because as, as students graduate, more students come to replace them in those housing. It would be a permanent kind of establishment. And that helps to actually then enliven the neighborhood. Students enjoy nightlife, movies, theaters, bars. They go to our parks, they go to our coffee
1: shops and our restaurants. They end up being like, and we see this in New York and many other college towns. Yeah. And, and I agree with all of that. I think there are some things that work as incentives simply by being a bit more reasonable in the process. But I, I do think that you need to go further than that. The models that have worked, as you said, around the world also included some direct support. New York has a model that has sort of property tax abatement. LA did something similar to that. Calgary and some other places have actually given direct supporting grants. Our bill also has some of that. So, I mean, there's really no public benefit to have an office building just sit there empty. And so it is in the public interest to convert these to housing, particularly considering the amount of resources and focus we have on building more housing in as a state. And so I do think some Incentives, whether those are reduction in tax liabilities or or even direct support, is you know may need to be a part of this because these conversions are can be expensive and complicated.
0: Is there anything that both of you want to point out that you would encourage that we should be changing about downtown, whether it's San Francisco or other downtowns through the state, to revive them?
1: I live downtown. I I, I live uh, on Market Street. I think this place still has. An incredible amount to offer uh, not only our city, but the region. It's well positioned for jobs. It's well positioned as a community for people to live. It's beautiful. It's connected with transit. We've got museums and restaurants and education. So, the, you know, there, there's a lot that's already here. And so, you know, some of the things we've talked about with housing are obviously things I really believe in. I, I also think that. The the opportunities that we have to bring people downtown for tourism and arts and entertainment and nightlife and all of those things, we really need to think about that critically as well, making it a lot easier for people to start a small business, to start a restaurant, to convert those uses. We're going to have to think of our downtown more as a neighborhood, as a community, not just a place where people come to work, but where they come to have fun and where they come because that's where they live. I think for me, it's like the issue
2: we're having downtown right now in some respect could be an opportunity to really re-envision what downtown can be for the next, not one, but two decades. So we talked about student housing before. We could extend that vision to actually a whole new academic campus. What if Stanford was in San Francisco? What if Berkeley created a new campus there for undergraduates? Or Stanford created an extended university campus right in San Francisco? That's how we build new jobs investing in the future is making sure we're training the best of the best here in San Francisco and then keeping them here. And then they'll create the next job, be the next film directors, next actors, next artists, next engineers, next entrepreneurs. If we do that in San Francisco, they will stay here.
0: Great. Well, thank you both for
1: making the time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: That was State Assemblymember Matt Haney and Housing Development Advocate Bilal Mahmoud. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SFNext project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. To get in touch, send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter. or at SFNext. I'm Laura Wenis. Coming up on SFNext Fixing Our City... San Francisco leaders have endorsed the idea of safe consumption sites, places where people can use drugs under supervision to reduce the risk of dying from an overdose. We'll hear different perspectives on these sites and dig into why the city doesn't have one yet next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext.